far is because something wonderful happened between 3.23 and 5.2, and that's justification by faith. That's what stands between those two things. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's exclusion. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. That's access. What happened, what got us from here to there? Justification. It is ours because this incredible thing that God has done. By grace, we believed. Our faith was counted as righteousness. Chapter 4 explains in such great detail. So our account is all paid up by Jesus' sacrifice and we're not short on our accounts on Judgment Day because we have His righteousness reckoned to us, the Bible says. So completely ours that we exult in it and we can rejoice because we stand in God's grace. And that's not all. In the next line... Verse 3, this is the shocker, and he even says it this way, and not only this, there's more to come, but we also exult in our tribulations. Personal disasters and troubles are triumphant victories. And you know, just that explains a lot about church history to me. I'm a history buff, you know. You wonder sometimes, how did these people achieve so much and suffer so much? Because it seems like the people that achieved the most are the ones that suffered the most. It's always been an interesting feature. Well, here's the answer. They triumphed in their justification and being at peace with God by standing in His grace. And that gave them this enormous outlook with which to engage in God's work no matter what and trust Him for the results. Tribulations is a pretty strong word. But you know, so much of life has to do with perspective. And they had the perspective of faith and hope and love. And if you look at these first five verses, you will find faith and hope and love. Tribulations are talking about really serious difficulties, all kinds of different things. You know, I was thinking of the Apostle Paul in Philippi where his preaching landed him in jail after a good beating with heavy sticks. Bam, bam. They put him in jail. They shackle him. He's in a dungeon. He's in an inner, inner part of the... It's not just normal jail, which in normal Roman jail is not like a real pleasant place. But he's in like a special internal security area with his feet in stocks after receiving a beating. And... It's not just a great place to be. And his guard heard a sound that the guards usually didn't hear coming out of that inner dungeon area. Singing and praying and joy. It's in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. It says they were singing hymns of praise to God, Paul and his friend Silas, who'd both gone through this. You know, the life of an apostle was a life of tribulation. Not only was the work difficult and dangerous, not only was persecution a very real possibility, but even within the churches, arrogant individuals for their own reasons would slander them behind their backs and say bad things about them. And Paul, Paul described the joys of ministry in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And in chapter 4, he's sort of chiding the Corinthian Christians for their pride and their smug spiritual attitudes which were encouraged by some real showy preachers that came to town who really had it all together and looked real sharp and spoke real cool and people got all caught up in their stuff and they would just cut Paul down behind his back and say bad things about him. And 
This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 4.8. This is an apostle. This is what their life is like. He's talking to them. He says, you, you are already filled. You have already become rich, he says. You have become kings without us. And I would indeed that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. You're so far beyond me now. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sakes but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak but you are strong. You are distinguished but we are without honor. To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. It's not exactly a recruiting poster for apostolic ministry, is it? In another place, he talks about carrying in his body the marks of Jesus, wounds from the innumerable beatings and tortures that he'd undergone. But you know, you never hear a word of bitterness in Paul, ever. He's just not a bitter person. In fact, one of his biographers was trying to come up with a title. F.F. Bruce wrote a really great biography of Paul, and he called his book The Apostle of the Heart Set Free. Because that just characterizes his personality and uh, his faith. He was a man free. Even though he was in jail all the time, getting beaten up all the time, shipwrecked, all these horrible things happening to him, he had a free heart. How is that possible? It's possible because he knew what justification meant, so he had a context for all these trials and tribulations. He had a, a way to actually see them from a divine perspective. And, and that's it. So in verse 3 he says, we exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. So he says, first of all, a tribulation for the Christian brings our commitment to Christ front and center. It's when we have trials and difficulties and, and nightmares in life, it brings it all out to the front there. You can just see it, what your faith is. Trials prove that something is genuine. You know, if I say I, I, I've built a new automobile engine in my backyard, has twice the power of an engine that's any other engine its size, uses half as much fuel, and I'd like you to invest in my, my new engine because I'm going to create a new automobile empire. You would probably say something like, if you're wise, well, start it up. <laughs> let's see how it goes. Let's, in fact, let's put it in an old car and drive it around and put it through the paces. And that, what do they call it? They call it putting something through a trial, right? You, tr you try something. Let's prove it. Let's see what it's really made of. Let's see if what you say is really so. So you race it around. You put it in adverse conditions. You drive it in the rain. You drive it in the snow. You do all these different kinds of things. You, you put a big trailer on it. You hook it up. You see how powerful it is. You, you see if these things are true. You put it through its paces. A person comes through a trial stronger than ever if they are genuine. And that's the next idea there in verse 4. He says, tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character. You, you go through a difficulty and that makes you steadfast. You suddenly say, hey, you know what? I'm in this difficulty and I still believe I can endure. 
I'm not abandoning God. I, it's not even in my heart to abandon God. I still believe. I'm struggling, but I still believe. And you endure it, and that endurance becomes a proof that you are God's child, that it's a real thing in your heart. You may even discover some weaknesses in your faith, but if you see them as weaknesses to work on, that's just a benefit as well. Justified people persevere in faith, and the testing of that perseverance results in a deeper awareness of God's presence in our lives. And that leads to hope. We come all the way back to hope again, full circle. Hope becomes even more sure within our hearts because we have endured for Christ and with Christ whatever the world can throw at us. And that gives us all the more confidence. You know, hope in the Bible is not something like, oh, I hope I go to heaven. It's a sure anchor hope. It's an absolute guaranteed thing. It's something that you know is going to happen. That's what biblical hope is. And all of it is a marvelous outworking of the grace of God because He's in the business of molding us and making us. And sometimes that means time in what they call the refiner's fire, right? That's an Old Testament idea. What do you put something in a fire for to refine it? What are you doing? You're burning off the junk and the crud or boiling it up to the top or skimming it off or whatever. You're purifying it. The refiner's fire produces a pure product, brings out what is genuine and burns off what is not needed. There may even be times in our lives when we should pray for such experiences, but be careful if you're going to do that. In order that we might be weaned from the world and, and more single-minded in our devotion. And then verse 5, he says, and hope does not disappoint. That's what I mean about it being a sure thing. Hope does not disappoint. There are hopes in this world that do disappoint. I had hoped my child would turn out like this and I became disappointed. I had hoped my business would, would do this and that was disappointing. I hoped this relationship would, but it didn't happen that way. I was very disappointed. But this is not some hope in an abstract sense. In fact, the Greek word here has a little article right before it, the word the, you know. It's the hope. It's the hope we've been talking about, the hope of the glory of God. Many hopes in life fail us, but this one does not disappoint. Why not? Verse 5. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, friends, it's God's Spirit in us, His love to us, the fact that He makes His Spirit dwell in our body in some mystical and amazing way. That is the, surely, the surety of our hope. It's a guaranteed thing. Colossians 1.27, Paul says, you know this expression, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's a really interesting expression. That's exactly what he's talking about. God's love is so evident in Christ and in the presence of His Spirit that we can fully lean on Him and trust in Him. And our future is secure. And life becomes an opportunity. No matter how hard it is, every situation in life becomes an opportunity to put Christ and His way on display to be more like Him. After all, Jesus made it in a hostile world and we're called upon to be like Him. And if we can be just a little bit like Him in a hostile world, it glorifies Him and it glorifies God.
So we should labor to be like him as much as we can, of course. We'll talk more about God's love next week, but I want to close this morning by reading you two letters. Um, These were written in August of 1651, almost exactly, almost to the day, 350 years ago. I think next week it'll be like the exact day, 350 years ago. These letters were written from the Tower of London. Christopher Love, what a great name. Christopher means Christ-bearing, a bearer of Christ. Bearer of Christ Love, what a great name. Christopher Love, Puritans love to name their people. He was a Puritan minister who was um, locked away, sentenced to death under England's Commonwealth uh, period. The situation politically was enormously complex, and I don't even want to get into that. And he was actually executed for political reasons. But all of that aside, a series of letters survives that he and his wife wrote to each other. And they're just wonderful. I mean, they're just amazing letters. Very deeply in love. Mary and Christopher love. And he was to be beheaded and was sentenced to die and did die on August 22, 1651. And I want to read you two letters. One was written on August 18th, four days before he died. And this is what it says. From the Tower, August 18, 1651. This is from Christopher to his wife. My dearest delight on earth, That's how he addressed her. I was fast asleep when thy note came. I bless God, I break not an hour's sleep for all my sufferings. I know they work for me a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I slept this night from ten at night till seven in the morning and never waked. My dear, I am comforted in the gracious support God gives thee, that my burdens are the lighter on my shoulder because they are not too heavy on thine. Or if they be heavy, yet that God helps thee to bear them. The Lord keep it in the purpose of our hearts forever to submit to the good pleasure of God. I bless God I do find my heart in as quiet and composed a temper as ever I did in all my life. I am till I die thy tender-hearted husband, Christopher Love. And here's the second letter written four days later on the day of his death. From the Tower of London, August 22, 1651, the day of my glorification. My most gracious beloved, I am now going from a prison to a palace. I have finished my work. I am now to receive my wages. I am now going to heaven where are two of my children and leaving thee on the earth where there are three of my babes. Those two above need not my care, but the three below need thine. It comforts me to think two of my children are in the bosom of Abraham and three of them will be in the arms and care of so tender a godly mother. I know thou art a woman of a sorrowful spirit, yet be comforted. Though thy sorrow be great for thy husband's going out of the world, yet thy pain shall be the less in bringing thy child into the world. Thou shalt be a joyful mother, though thou beest a sad widow. God hath many mercies in store for thee. The prayers of a dying husband for thee shall not be lost. To my shame I speak it. I never prayed so much for thee at liberty as I have done in prison. I cannot write more, but I have a few practical counsels to leave with thee. One, keep under a sound, orthodox, and soul-searching ministry. Oh, there are deceivers gone out into the world, but Christ's sheep know his voice, and a stranger they will not follow. Attend on that ministry that teaches the way of God in truth. Two, bring up thy children in the knowledge and admonition of the Lord. The mother ought to be a teacher in the father's absence. Timothy was instructed by his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. Three, pray in thy family daily, that thy dwelling may be in the number of the families that call upon God. Four, labor for a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. 
5. Think not on the comforts thou wantest, but on the mercies thou hast. 6. Look rather at God's end in afflicting than at, look rather at God's end in afflicting than at the measure and degree of thy affliction. And then skipping down a little bit, he says, Study the covenant of grace and the merits of Christ, and then be troubled if thou canst. Thou art interested in such a covenant that accepts purposes for performances, desires for deeds, sincerity for perfection, the righteousness of another, that of Jesus Christ, as if it were thine own. Oh, my love, rest. Rest then in the love of God, in the bosom of Christ. Swallow up thy will in the will of God. It is a bitter cup we are to drink, but it is the cup our Father hath put into our hands. When Paul was to go suffer at Jerusalem, the Christians could say, The will of the Lord be done. Oh, say thou, when I go to Tower Hill, the will of the Lord be done. Rejoice in my joy. To mourn for me inordinately argues that either thou enviest or suspectest my happiness. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Oh, let it be thine also. Dear wife, farewell. I will call thee wife no more. I shall see thy face no more, yet I am not much troubled, for now I am going to meet the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom I shall be eternally married. Thy dying yet most affectionate friend till death, Christopher Love. That's the perspective that justification brings to tribulations. Impractical doctrine? I don't think so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that sustains us in the surety of our hope in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Oh, may that doctrine ring so true in our hearts that we would be unshakable in terms of whatever your will might be, that we would find in anything you choose work for us, opportunity to reflect the love and the glory of Christ in faith, knowing that thou knowest best always. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.